0: A couple of days ago, I found the best feature in Elixir. Let's see if you can top this. The best feature in Elixir is the, the funny-looking parenthesis. Brackets, the square ones. And you can, can put them like on the side of each other. Or what I was going to say is that you can go into a structure or a map that contains maps, that contains maps, that contains maps. And if the first field in the map is a nil, it doesn't crash in unexpected nil error or something lame like that. It just keeps giving nil or whatever. The whole expression evaluates to nil. And this is such a lovely feature. It brings me joy right into the soul.
1: Wait. So you can chain, because that's the accessor thing.
0: Yeah, I think it evaluates, like the first uh, substitution is uh, that it goes to access.get. Yeah. And if you run access.get on nil, you get nil.
1: I thought that did not work, but maybe it's that I've tried to do other things on the nil. Yeah. It's probably that I've tried to do other things on the nil. I usually end up using get in with that. Now you're making me uh, carefully, optimistically happy.
0: (laughs) Awesome. But if you, on the other hand, go... uh, Well, this is a a subtle one. Um, If you say map dot some field name and that field name isn't set, everything crashes. Yeah. If that field name is nil, though, and you continue with the bracket syntax, the same thing happens, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, that would probably work fine. So? Well, I was going to say, I might never have run into this properly because there's almost always an ecto struct somewhere in my data structure. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about the the code base you're working on, I don't think there's a single struct in there. Uh, very mappy
0: yeah i think you and i have added one each or something mm. during the <laughs> period i've been working on it
1: mandatory structs added
0: yeah absolutely because you cannot add the structs to the you cannot put them in the database because the database crashes uh we've found this out the not the hard way we made a little experiment and found this out
1: well that's probably just because that your database is a json thingy and your JSON thingy, well, you can't encode structs to JSON thingy without actually stripping out some of the keys or adding. I think it's a derive statements or statement or something so that JSON uh, or whatever JSON encoder you're using knows how to deal with it. Yep, exactly.
0: So, have you found any any features in a programming language that just make you warm and fussy?
1: I was going to. A comment when you were saying that you can take a pair of square brackets and then put things in it uh, that yes and then you can put items in it and then you get a list <laughs> that's a very nice feature yeah. uh, but no rather on the topic of square brackets i guess i could speak to what's essentially a workaround for a problem mm-hmm. in elixir because elixir lists are linked lists so they have all the disadvantages of linked lists, which is traversal time. Like if you want to get the tail of the list, the final piece, you have to traverse the entire list. While getting the first part of the list is very fast. When
0: when you say tail, do you mean the last item, or uh,
1: yeah, I mean the the absolutely final item. Uh, yeah, rather yeah, not the head tail tail. Just okay, the, cool. The, the end tail. item. Yeah, the final.
0: Final. The finalist item,
1: Yeah. Yeah. But when you're dealing with binary and building binaries, Elixir has this pretty convenient and rather neat workaround that IO lists, which are lists lists in lists in lists in lists with eventually some binary data in them. And binary data in Elixir can also be strings because strings are binaries. But when I was working on this ID3 library, it's actually published now uh, and changelog has taken over it. So,
0: yay. Oh, hey, does this mean that you won open source? You published an open source library that you don't have to maintain.
1: Yep, I'm a winner. Cool. I have succeeded. I have written the code and it's not my problem. So good. Yeah, it's fantastic. But when doing that, we needed to build binaries like parsing binaries is super nice with binary pattern matching building them the naive approach is sort of concatenating binaries and that's not great in the long run because let's say you are adding a bunch of small binaries to a big binary and the big binary has is 56 megs or something because it's an mp3 file then you would have to make copies upon copies on copies of these because that's how binaries work that's how immutability works and uh, sometimes you can get away with sort of copy on write but the thing you're doing and concatenating is writing so (laughs) screw that up like instantly and i guess a language like haskell might be able to do that in some lazy fashion where it doesn't really do the operation until it's it has to kind of and in that way it could batch it together and not do all the hard work
0: yeah it's it solves it in another way it's We can speak about that later. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Elixir can't do that because anything could happen at any time, sort of. But IO lists are pretty cheap to build and you just shove more and more binaries in these lists and the items in a list don't change. If the items aren't changing, it doesn't have to make new copies until uh, you actually try to change anything and uh, immutability and all. So you don't have to keep, murdering your garbage collector you don't have to fight with memory instead you just build these lists lists in lists and lists and instead of uh, dealing with the head or tail problem it's like oh i need to add something at the start of this list well i'll just put it in a list it's a list and a list and a list and, a list. and then when you want to r- turn that into your final binary it's just one function call and it quite efficiently flattens it out and uh, turns it into a binary
0: that's so good I need to look into them.
1: Yeah, it's quite nice. I believe that's also how EX templates are done. Ah. So there's large chunks that are just inert binary, and then there's like, oh, this is a dynamic part. It can, it can produce one or more items. Um, yeah, and then it will, like those parts will change, and that's also part of how Live View works or at least used to work they might have gotten more sophisticated at this point but it's like oh yeah uh, when we're parsing the template it turns into this list of some parts are static some parts are dynamic and only the dynamic parts can ever change so we only have to send information back and forth about changes to the dynamic parts because the static parts will never change cool yeah so it all it all sort of Fits together. It's used in a number of useful ways. Phoenix has very, very fast uh, template rendering. Yeah, even with the regular dead views. So that's something that I I liked when I when I sort of figured out that oh I actually need to build binaries and I know concatenating them is inefficient, but list within lists within lists that's perfectly efficient, and not perfectly probably, <laughs> but it's good enough.
0: The whole construct sounds strange. So it must be good. So you mentioned Haskell. And that's, it's almost a nerd snipe for me. So now I'm going to talk about Haskell for a while. And uh, what I've been missing from Haskell when I've been working in other languages is probably a quite good way to measure what I really like about Haskell. And one of the things I really like in Haskell is the type system that screams at me if it isn't happy. It's a mixed blessing, though. Because I can't do something very hand wavy and hope that it will work and uh, just run it and see where it crashes. On the other hand, the type checker is very fast. So it will tell me in a very quick fashion <laughs> when I've uh, done something that won't work anyway. So maybe I'm saving time that way. And it lets me model many problems in interesting ways. And one of the more interesting things there that shows up in other languages too, that I'm really fond of, is maybe or it's friend either. Bigger brother, either I think. Either. So either is like result in Rust or Uh. Elm perhaps. So it's either left or right. Left and right are the constructors. That's not very friendly names, but they are memorable.
1: I would say that result is better in that regard.
0: (laughs) Yep. So that's I I suppose that's Haskell being Haskell.
1: I also expect that it's sort of trivial to implement a clearer name if you have to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And also there's a great and very hard to understand paper called Fools to the left and jokers to the right. Or maybe the other way around. I don't remember.
1: It's a Steeler's Wheel reference.
0: Yeah, it's so good. Which is about functors, I believe. Um, And he's his doing amazing things with functors in that paper. Any day now, I'm going to remember the author. Or authors. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'll get back to you with that. And any day any- now,
1: I'll know what a functor is.
0: Yeah, it's... A beautiful little shy creature. And also, having both either and maybe lets me structure my code. So I can say, if something can fail in a way where I don't care about the failure, I can put maybe around it. And if something can fail in a way where I care about the failure, I can put either around it. And that gives quite a nice mental framework. To say, I can just look at a function signature and see this thing can fail in a way where we don't care about the failure or something like that. And also, like, if I have a list, for instance, lists in Haskell are like lists in Elixir, but they are lazy, which means that they're evaluated as little as possible all the time. Mm. And, well, that aside, I have a function that evaluates to a maybe list of something. And I think it's absolutely perfectly fine if the list is empty. Yeah, But there can be some error that makes the list empty or puts weird things in it. And then I can evaluate everything to nothing. But if I'm happy with the list generated, I can put just around the list and... <laughs> Keep on working on this. This uh, beautiful result. Yeah. So, does this make sense at all?
1: Yeah. Uh, I really didn't like maybes, and I absolutely hated results when I got into Elm.
0: What? What made? What made you so unhappy with them?
1: So the maybes I got over pretty quickly because they they make very clear sense. Yep. Dict get can fail to get an item. Yep. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's fair enough, I guess. And it is uh, the way to model it with Elm that you either get a just uh, of the type that the dict can have, the val- type of values the dict can have, or you get a nothing. Yep. That's pretty clear. Now, one thing that drove me absolutely nuts in this particular <laughs> code base is that so many things in that particular code I was learning on were results. (laughs) And they never stopped being results. It's not like they took a result and then at the time that they were evaluating this, uh, in this case, a lot of it was parsing JSON. So let's say you're parsing this document you were loading And if it failed to parse, of course, that's an error. And if it uh, succeeded, it's an OK, which is the two types of states that a result can be or the two types that make up a result. And then at the point where the result was returned, they did not interpret the result. They just shoved it into the model, which meant that you either had a successful result or a failed result and then I would have been happy to say you rendered something based off of that, but it was much more complex than that. They used results with different kind kinds of failed resolutions as sort of, oh, we haven't attempted to fetch this information yet. We haven't tried to load this information yet. We're waiting for this information now and a bunch of other sort of it's-not-ready-yet type of outcomes that, that made things a lot more complex and maybe that's a good pattern it didn't feel like a good pattern i think if you have a list of the documents you've loaded it's probably best if that's a, a list like the type information should be list document not list result document in many cases yeah there are probably cases where it's wise to sort of keep that information around one advantage is of course they could potentially render out like this document is fine this had an error loading this is fine this is an error loading but it means that anytime you need to access any of the data you get this you get this sort of uh, code wildly building out to the right (laughs) down into the right as you unpack these data structures just to do the common case which it drove me slightly nutty. But I, I've become fast friends with maybe and I'm okay with the result.
0: I can totally see why. In both cases, I think you could have uh, great use for both. I wonder what the name of that is now. But fmap in uh, Haskell and uh, bind, I think the name I is think the, it's map and and
1: then that you're talking about, but I'm not sure.
0: Oh, cool. Because they let you... Uh, do things with uh, the thing you and then and uh, map over. So that's quite useful. Yeah, and and removes quite a bit of case
1: expressions. Yeah, but they replace them with <laughs> with map and and then. So yeah, it's just yep. sometimes it's nice if you can boil it down to actually <laughs> only dealing with the successful data, and uh, they never did that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Is I think we say crash early, crash often, or do we?
1: Let it crash is what I heard. Uh but yeah, breaking yeah. breaking early is probably is usually a good idea. So this would never really break, which is fair enough if you're doing Elm. You're not supposed to sort of throw you're not supposed to cause exceptions. Huh. But oh well. when when you're getting an error, maybe you should do something with that. Uh, Asap, but it might also be yeah. some philosophy I'm not super fond of, or it's just that that code is absolute chaos, and it was made by other people, which is always upsetting.
0: Absolutely, it's the worst.
1: Things that make me happy right now, yeah, uh sort of real timey stuff. <sighs> so in Elixir, I've been I've been poking around with. A telegram bot again and it's so satisfying when it works uh, but have connecting sort of a telegram bot client to the telegram bot api and just having it there long polling for updates you send it a message and almost instantly have it in your live view processed in whatever way you're you're keen on it's just I think it's a very satisfying flow and compared to what that would look like for example in Python where it's like oh we need to be ready for messages in so we need to do some kind of receive call here then do the operations if we get some data and then we need to poke it back out or we need to get into the whole as- async IO thing and pretend that we are doing uh, node but in this case it's just like oh yeah we have a gen server sort of dealio uh we write a callback it deals with the thing it can send new messages Uh, everything's gravy and it's super easy to just sort of send and broadcast more messages to every connected client and that kind of deal it's just very very satisfying and just the the way it's absolutely instantaneous especially when you don't have to write any JavaScript to get sort of a real-time UI set up. That's, that's a magical live view.
0: That sounds amazing. Yeah, not writing JavaScript sounds really good too. It's, well, one thing in JavaScript that made me happy today is that the greater than, less than, and equal to operators work with date objects. Because that's one of the foot guns of elixir that the daytime is a struct, and structs behave in a very interesting way if you do normal comparisons, yeah, between. I think
1: it's an inherited Erlang foot gun, and it's definitely interesting,
0: yeah, and it's it's one of those big foot guns and i think I think I replaced my feet five or six times with that foot gun, uh so when I don't have to care about it, it's just wow. Uh, but then there are other things yeah. that are more frustrating. Uh, but the date support in JavaScript has become so much better the last uh, 20 years.
1: Yeah, I guess you don't need Moment.js anymore in many cases.
0: Yeah, I've heard that from, from lots of people. And since I've n- never really <laughs> known how to use Moment.js, I feel like, like a superhero.
1: Yeah, I definitely used Moment.js a fair bit uh it's it's very good <laughs> or it was very good especially like oh i have a date time in some kind of format eh, i need a d- date time object parse <laughs> okay done yeah sweet it was magic it's like the jQuery of dates
0: so good those kind of libraries are so good should be used more It's one of those fascinating things, me and a coworker of mine, we've been talking quite a lot about having big building blocks, and especially big building blocks that everyone on the team have agreed on and know. I suppose in your case, one of those big building blocks is Phoenix. That's not true in our case. So we're building them ourselves, uh, which probably makes it more interesting to onboard on this team. But yeah. yeah, any day now will migrate everything to... I was going to say something outrageous on the back end, but I, <laughs> my brain just shut down. <laughs>
1: uh, Haskell, of course. Have you played around with bots at all? What kind of bots? Autobots, Decepticons, no. Um, chatbots. <laughs> like. uh, yeah,
0: IRC chatbots a very mm. long time ago. I think I have some of them on GitHub. Uh, one of the more interesting ones is one that reads. You can feed it a uh, an IRC log chat history, and then it will, using Markov chains, uh, send new messages to the channel after roughly every 20 messages or something. Uh, so that was was kind of stupid and fun especially since the people in that channel talked in a way that was very good for
1: Markov chains they were highly optimized for for being replaced by bots
0: absolutely have you played around with bots
1: yeah mostly with this telegram thing i we did at a previous job of mine build out that was in node for no particular reason uh, but a slack bot that operated a toy monkey the toy monkey was one of those where if you remove its banana which is mounted with a magnet it goes i think they described it as, as apeshit uh, and it got very noisy and did a bunch of uh, annoying sounds whenever that happened and then we operated on the on the monkey and we re- sort of can <laughs> we embedded a pie in it raspberry pie hmm connected a speaker i think we might have even switched out the speaker that was in the monkey because it was so bad or we used the one that was in there i don't recall but we connected it to the Pi at least so the Pi could drive the speaker and we might have drilled a hole in one of the monkey's eyes to get one of the pie cameras in there uh to so instead of the black of the eye you, uh, you would have this tiny lens <laughs> sticking out and um That monkey then, every now and then, received new feature updates. Where So I experimented with OpenCV and face tracking on it. I didn't get very far, but I did some things with it where it could detect that a person arrived and say something. But there were also just a ton of Slack commands that this monkey had access to, which would trigger different sounds that were felt important or had cultural value.
0: That sounds like an amazing hacker team activity
1: yeah it was a it was a good it was a good one it was one of the proper we we sat down and did something really stupid and spent some time doing yeah doing team building and uh, building as a team as well so good (laughs) the fair risk of uh, raspberry pi overheating in a monkey though i'll let you know let me know
0: yeah yeah maybe it needs like a cooling thingy yeah, on its back yeah. or something.
1: <laughs> we should have put a, a cool cooling plate out the back of a monkey and just put a big fan in its yeah. backpack. But we had the power bank there. so.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's like I'm thinking of the rat things. Are they in Snow Crash? Or are they, are they a Stevenson or a Gibson? I'm
1: not sure which rat things you're talking about.
0: Rat things are kidnapped Dogs that have been turned into dog cyborgs. They have a, a nuclear power plant in their torso. Oh I think that's a snow so.
1: crash. Uh, there It's a snow crash, uh, right? There's a weird modified dog in Gibson, but that one just blows up. It's a slam hound.
0: Yeah, that's not as cool. And and the one of the other cool things with the rat things is that they are living in a virtual world where they are I don't know, chasing cats and eating beef all day. <laughs> eating steak, I think, when they're not activated to hunt something in the real world. All right. So, yeah. I think I need to read Snow Crash again.
1: Yeah. I wonder if it's if it's as much fun to read today. It's going to be a lot of, oh, oh, people are really trying to do this.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, yeah. I wonder if those ideas are memes in the way that they are like, uh, they start existing by themselves and then spread. Or if someone has read the book and told someone, or if the people who are doing this have read the book and are trying to copy it, or...
1: Yeah, I don't know.
0: Why is the world so strange and bad, is what I'm...
1: Otherwise, I've been pretty happy with playing around with, it's not a programming language as such, but Tailwind. CSS. oh yeah like it's a mixed bag it's definitely not it doesn't feel sort of clean uh or sort of well structured it's not like you feel like you're doing god's work or working at the perfect abstraction layer or anything when you're doing it but damn it actually gets things done and when you have when you're working at a tool which has components fundamentally it will it will gel very well with components in a way that i don't think semantic or sort of uh, yeah traditional css approaches do i read somewhere that css grows linearly with time not with anything else specifically with development time just because whenever you're building something and it needs to look a certain way, you just add to the CSS. You can only add to the CSS. You cannot remove. You cannot refactor. You CSS only grows. And I think that's my experience from from most uses of CSS, that it does actually just grow.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you've been using Tailwind for a while, right?
1: Yeah, off and on. Not in sufficient depth. So it's only been for sort of my smaller side projects. And now I'm getting into okay. it uh, at client at a client, which is nice because uh, we had a backend that had no plan, or rather we had an admin part oh. that had no plan. We just threw some CSS at it, and we had inherited some CSS. And now, rather, we're we're working off of a Tailwind UI template, and I've spent some time converting at least some of what we're doing into a few components and stuff so uh, it's a good start i think
0: cool then i'll get back to you in a year or something and ask you how how it is to work in old tailwind
1: yeah, yeah i mean i think in many ways it's uh, well it takes a very different tack than for example bootstrap where i was a uh, after a while frustrated that you could see every site was using bootstrap and it was so obvious yep Uh but also bootstrap gave you these great utilities for structuring a page uh, and you could move really quickly but it was really difficult to modify and adapt to your own thing or it was quite difficult yep and after a while you were back to to the normal css challenges
0: mhm
1: yeah and i don't think tailwind will go that way it may grow its own challenges and it definitely so I spoke to Alex Kutmus and he's done a fair bit of Tailwind and he was like, yeah, you have to, you definitely have to component componentize or whatever, uh, turn things into components or and break it apart because it will become just tag soup after a while. If you have a top to bottom HTML thing and you've written just Tailwind classes on all the elements, it's gonna get difficult. But if it's a component of, 20 or so lines it's clear enough uh, yeah i guess that's the sort of sort of thing there uh, you can't get away from it in computers you need some level of abstraction here and there to constrain complexity i think tailwind does a decent job of tackling something that's clearly quite difficult because there have been a ton of different approaches and all of them are like be very disciplined about this and Tailwind doesn't actually require much discipline, which is probably a big reason why it's popular and why I think it might work.
0: <laughs> so good. Yeah. Not demanding discipline is very good. Because demanding discipline, that's work. That's lots of work. And if I want to to use up all my willpower at work, I could start working in C or assembly or something. Which is me ranting, but yeah. Yeah. There should be a, a limit to how much energy you need to put into something that's... or wait this is me as a backend developer going <laughs> front and isn't really... Ah, I should really stop ranting <laughs> maybe it's only me that's disappointed in why is CSS so incredibly hard and why is everything so so... it's fractal it feels fractal working in CSS. It's just so many corners and all of them are sharp
1: but i think that's also the case for the back end like everything in computers are sort of fractally difficult in some cases there are perhaps better designed abstractions to work on top of i know chris keithley has said this about uh, about abstractions that Good abstractions are the type of abstractions you forget that you're using. <laughs> sort of, you don't think about the network stack. Yeah. You don't think about TCP, TCP IP or uh, TCP and UDP, like only if you're doing things that are very close there and where those concerns are super important. But generally, you can just ignore most of the network stack. You can use the abstractions provided, like, oh, IP addresses and ports and hosts and stuff. But you very rarely have to, like, oh, no, no. (laughs) Something's caught up in the TCP again. I better, better fix that. It generally just works. And the abstractions are good enough that you don't find that it leaks or that it exposes too few knobs for you. And I think in the browser, we've had this slightly ad hoc approach and uneven uh, distribution of of progress so you can never really rely on the abstractions and then the moment you start twiddling the knobs under the hood of any of these abstractions suddenly things start to blow up I'm thinking like accessibility for example a website by default has quite good accessibility but it's a lot of work to maintain good accessibility while building out a sort of rich front-end ui and it's a lot of work to make something keep something looking good while keeping it mobile friendly and keeping it desktop friendly and keeping it ipad friendly at the same time moving forward but I don't think it's fundamentally different from, from the challenges of the backend. But it might be that some of, some of those abstractions are more thoroughly in place and maybe a bit better, more reliable in the backend. It could also
0: be that there are fewer variables because that code, the backend code, runs on a machine that I'm very familiar with, using infrastructure that I'm very familiar with, and the language I'm very familiar with, and so on. Uh, so there's
1: ah, but I hear a key, familiar.
0: Yeah, yeah, but but it's not only that I'm a backend developer. <laughs> Even though that's a, a huge part of it, of course. Uh, it's also that if I want to run my code on my frontend code on an iPad on an the latest iPhone on Mm. a 10-year-old Android phone on the horrible ancient stuff they're using at the municipality offices and so on. I There's no chance I can be familiar with all of those to the same extent that I'm familiar with the stuff I'm working on every day.
1: Yeah, the more interfaces you want to work with your thing... The harder it is to achieve or maintain, especially given any level of complexity. Like if you if you built a basic website, it's pretty easy to make it work across all those devices you listed. Uh, but the more nuanced and more particular you get about what it is supposed to be and what the experience is supposed to be, the harder it is to hit that goal. And I guess the the more inaccessible you decide to make your application, the easier it gets. Like constraints, like we don't have to serve these types of people, or this type of client, or this type of device, or uh, we don't have use any of these APIs. And suddenly it boils down to, I guess, the the application that you never have to deal with at all. That's the best one. <laughs> The completely inaccessible thing that just runs on a server and does things um uh, but it's very rarely useful, and it's in the intersection of usefulness, I think that everything gets complicated, yeah,
0: I prefer to write my programs as proofs and hope that they never run. It's enough if they type check, yeah, also a long time ago uh there was quite a lot of i think this was back in the netscape internet explorer days uh there was quite a lot of uh, speaking about graceful was it graceful degradation that sounds weird yeah it was graceful
1: degradation
0: yeah so you have all these fancy features on bling and stuff and then someone <laughs> comes uh with their Internet Explorer 5.5 on a Mac, and then the site still works. You don't get all the bling, but you you get a good enough experience that you can use the site. Yeah, I don't know if it has fallen out of fashion or if there's a better term for it now. But
1: yeah, they switched the terminology and changed the uh, sort of changed the idea a little bit. I think uh, the one I hear more about is but now I haven't heard of it in a bit, progressive enhancement. That's a good one. So you start with the fundamentals. You make those fundamentals work and then you can enhance it based off of conveniences that are available, improvements that are available. But you start with the foundational functionality and work up from there.
0: Yeah. Has that fallen out of fashion since the big SPAs? started oh,
1: doing the thing i mean it, it, it <laughs> both graceful degradation and progressive enhancement neither of which have ever achieved proper fashionable status it's fashionable to want them as a developer yeah, yeah. it's it's one of those things that uh, my hipster folk that that i the people that get what i'm writing and like what i do they they would be all for it uh, they would be keen on it I am keen on it but no one ever wants to pay for it cool that's my experience at least
0: yeah so as usual we're we're belonging to some kind of strange cult worshipping the progressive enhancement
1: artisanal artisanal indie web yeah handcrafted bits and bytes